Welcome to Season 2, Episode 3 of the Energy Markets Podcast. Today we have our first returning guest, Rob Gramlich of uh, the many hats he wears, uh, most prominently these days, uh, Americans for a Clean Energy Grid, a coalition of interests that seeks to promote necessary transmission development to bring renewable energy from remote locations to the population centers where it's needed. Rob, thanks for joining us again. Great to be back, Brian. I've enjoyed your podcast and uh, congratulations for a great first year. <laughs> Thanks. So you were our first guest uh, uh, on our inaugural podcast, which was a day after the uh, inauguration of uh, President Joe Biden. And uh, as as we talked, uh, we, we tried to take stock of what to expect uh, from the Biden administration, given its different focus from the previous administration, as well as what to expect from the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission chairman uh, just appointed that day, Rich Glick. Um, so we now have a year's perspective. Um, so what grade would you give the administration and its report card for the past year? Well, I think it's very good. I, I do think that uh, clean energy has been a, a priority, both legislatively and through the various agencies. And uh, transmission has been uh, you know, prominently featured on their clean energy agenda. Uh, I think you and I knew a year ago, and most of us sort of inside Washington knew a year ago that um, there weren't necessarily 50, let alone 60 votes in the Senate for strong clean energy policies. Uh, and in fact, on some things, there's more like 48 uh, votes, uh, right? So, uh, you know, I, I know Biden himself is getting hammered right now and his approval ratings are, are you know, much lower than they were a year ago. Um, but I, I think a lot of us in Washington are sort of saying, well, you know, you don't have the votes. Why, you know, you don't don't blame the guy who, you know, is voting for the things and pushing for the things. So that's a, that's a high level assessment. But we can talk about there's a lot of pieces of what they're doing. You said, quote, <laughs> I think if anybody can get bipartisan cooperation in the Senate, and the Senate is where it needs to happen, I think it's Joe Biden. Whether he's able to do that uh, remains to be seen. So I think we've seen, uh, you know, we, we, uh, uh, we, we've seen two Democrats, obviously, it's been prominent in the news, two Democrats who have uh, 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 gotten in the way of that uh, bipartisan cooperation that we needed to see. So, um, you know, I guess, you know, in terms of grading uh, the president, uh, we, we can give him an incomplete, I guess that's an option, right? Yeah, well, and, and also, you know, the, the bipartisan infrastructure law is a law now. And um, that was actually passed with, um, you know, 60, over 60 Senate votes and uh, with a number of Republicans. And it, it you know, that didn't transform energy policy and it, it didn't, you know, build a, you know, macro grid like I would like to see. But it it uh, it did, for example, um, provide much stronger federal backstop siting for transmission, which is important for, for clean energy. And that's obviously very controversial in the industry and with states. And, you know, that was passed on, a, again, on a bipartisan basis. So that's pretty significant. I actually wouldn't have predicted that specific change a year ago. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's get into that uh, a little more in detail uh, in a minute. But first, uh, uh, w what grade do you give Rich Glick at FERC? 
Oh, very high grade. Uh, I think uh, Chairman Glick and Commissioner Clements, um, who's also been there um, most of this year, are are doing a great job on the agenda setting uh, with a number of uh, active initiatives on uh, clean energy and transmission. And I think the advanced notice of proposed rulemaking, making the so-called ANOPER, could be the commission's most significant action ever. And all of the issues are teed up very well in that. It's going to be a challenge to get it all done, which I think they're going to going to try to do here in this year, calendar year 2022. Um, and they're going to have to make some choices about, you know, how to, what to prioritize and how to move forward. But I, I think uh, that's very well teed up and they've got good staff resources working on it. So that's a, that's a very big deal. Yeah. Well, I, I, I noticed, uh, if I read it correctly, um, Rich's term is up in June, so he needs to get renominated. Um uh, I, you know, my my supposition would be that anything big would wait until after that, uh, given given how precarious things are in the Senate. Yeah, well, you and I have seen this happen many times in the past, where uh, you know a term that ends in June can actually go through the end of the calendar year until Congress adjourns for the year, and so um, you know that often that often happens. So it. Uh, you know, it can create uncertainty for the individual and for the agency and all of us um, who, you know, pay attention to FERC, FERC policy. And, you know, Rich uh, may well want to continue and may well get uh, re-nominated and reconfirmed, but I'm not sure any of us are going to know for sure until probably the end of the year. So, Okay. Um, so, so let's get a little more granular, as uh, Pat Wood was always fond of saying. Um, you, uh, uh, you mentioned the uh, Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. Um, uh, t- tell us about wh- what's important in there. And, and I guess that's kind of related to the initiative that the Department of Energy announced last week. Correct. Yeah. So the IIJA, or let's just call it the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law to distinguish it from the other one that's still hanging out there, we'll talk about Build Back Better. Um, but the bipartisan bill that passed and is now law um, has a, a couple key transmission provisions. One is that federal backstop siting. It, it essentially uh, corrects some damage that the courts did to it back in uh, 2009 to restore it to what I believe the intent originally was in 2005. Um, in the Energy Policy Act. Um, And so it strengthens uh, the hand of the Department of Energy and uh, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC, on um, federal backstop siting. Yeah, let let me interrupt you there, uh, Rob, because you're hitting on something that I I wanted to ask you about, because, you know, I I was still at FERC when when, when this uh, uh, Congress gave FERC this transmission siting authority. Um, I'm not quite familiar with the court decision that you're, you're responding to, because I, I, I know that Congress meant to give FERC the authority to essentially veto a state de- state decision to reject a line or indecision to not act on a line. Um, so what did the court do and how did that change things? 
Yeah, well, the, the court said that, uh, and this was, I believe, the Fourth Circuit in the Piedmont decision in 2009, the court said, well, if a state says no, then that's the end of the story. There's no recourse to the federal permitting process. And I think what Congress just did is to say, uh, no, in fact, there is recourse to the federal process if a state uh, says no. Um, so that obviously changes the balance uh, quite a bit. Um and it does connect to this recent Department of Energy uh, initiative. We'll, we'll talk about that more uh, probably in a bit. But, um, you know, just to summarize again, the bipartisan law, there is that that change to the um, federal backstop siting, along with a, a couple of tweaks to the criteria for designation of those uh, national interest electric transmission corridors. Uh, and then there's another key program in there. Um, that's new called a transmission facilitation program. And that's, uh, that's I think, going to be helpful. It's where you might have these long, high-voltage lines uh, like we have around the country that are having a lot of trouble. They don't have any clear way to recover their costs or to get customers for these lines. They might be providing all kinds of resilience and reliability value, but it's sort of like a public good. It's like beneficial for the world, but who's going to pay for it? Um, and this allows the federal government through the Department of Energy to actually reserve capacity on those lines and essentially serve as an anchor tenant or, you know, one additional tenant to reserve lines uh, so that hopefully their economics work. And then uh, the federal and then DOE would essentially be a capacity holder in the future and they can sell that market that to market participants in the future and hopefully market participants would, um, you know, reserve that capacity and essentially pay the government back and then DOE gets its money back. And this is a $2.5 billion revolving fund. So if they can, you know, let's say they put in $500 million to help a line go forward. And then after a few years, uh, you know, they, they get the money paid back and the $2.5 billion is filled up again and they can go out and, you know, spend that money on other, on the next project. So that's a, it's an innovative idea. We were um, involved in the development and creation of it and proposing of it. Um, Senator Cantwell was uh, key on, on that one. Uh, so that's the second piece of the bipartisan law. The third is uh, smart grid investment grants. And those are, um, that's the same program that uh, paid for all the smart meters back in 2009 in Obama's Recovery Act. But uh, this time it's a little bit more directed towards bulk power system uh, uh, opportunities. And for example, I'm pretty excited about grid enhancing technologies that can deliver more power over existing lines. And uh, I think we can squeeze a lot of efficiencies out of the existing system with those. And I think these grants can can help utilities do that. Uh, so there was some not only funding, $3 billion put in for funding, but also additional language encouraging the use of grid enhancing technologies for that program. So those are the, the three key pieces from my perspective related to transmission in the bipartisan law. Well, I think from your perspective, those are all exciting things that, that uh, should should help give some more momentum to what's been a unfortunately stagnant process. Yeah, no, that's um, right. By by any, you know, by any normal standard, that's that's those are impressive accomplishments for a bipartisan bill. And as you know, we don't, you know, we don't we don't pass transmission legislation 
very often. You really have to almost, you know, go back to 2007 or so. Um, so at any rate, you know, people, it's uh, the, get back to the kind of the overall grading of uh, progress here. You know, people thought this might be a absolutely transformative year to fully address climate and all that. And of course, by that standard, we didn't make much progress. But by the standard of le legislative improvement, you know, compared to any other year we've had in the last 15 years, it's it's uh, it's quite good. Yeah. Yeah. I'm interested in the uh, <clears throat> the revolving loan uh, program that you talked about. I know in uh, the Clean Water Act, it's been a it's been a huge uh, success story, revolving loan uh, to help uh, uh, small uh, water utilities deal with Clean Water Act compliance. It's 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 been a it's been a big success. So uh, it'll be something to keep an eye on. All right. Well, well, let's talk about the part of the glass that's half empty. Um, the the Build Back Better initiative has been dominating the news, uh, the fact that it's been stalled because of Mansion and Cinema, And um, what's in there that we're going to miss out on? Yeah, well, so first of all, um, the roughly half a trillion dollar climate piece um, is uh you know is is a big deal from a climate perspective i think the numbers add up to really you know get us on track to paris commitments and biden uh commitments um so uh and among that uh half a trillion dollars there's the 10-year extensions of uh clean energy tax credits uh wind solar um uh and now storage and transmission uh, but there's also, you know, a lot of money for all sorts of things, carbon capture, hydrogen, um, you name it, a lot of, you know, carbon free or carbon reducing technologies. So there's um, a lot of money in there. It's, you know, it's probably not any economists, you know, purest, first best type of public policy. You know, uh, every, so many people would have loved to see a carbon price, for example, that's not in there. Many people would have loved to see as maybe a second best, a sort of a clean energy standard type of policy. That's not in there. There was an attempt, but this is a bill that's going through the so-called reconciliation process, right, where um, you can get through with 50 Senate votes instead of 60. Uh, and so for that reason, there are certain rules and things that, you know, spend or take in money qualify, but policy changes per se, do not qualify for that process. So they had to sort of go through some contortions to make a clean energy standard. Anyway, Senator Manchin um, pretty much nixed that one. Um, so then we're left with good old-fashioned tax credits, um, which uh, somehow seem to be able to get through better than other public policies. And they, they sure have. I mean, uh, you know, you can say a lot of things about tax credits for energy policy, but they sure have succeeded in bringing down the costs um, because they deploy a lot. You know, manufacturers bring their facilities here. They learn more and better ways. You know, the wind turbines got bigger and more efficient, productive. The solar panels now tilt with the sun and, you know, they're, they're bifacial. And, you know, uh, there's been all sorts of technology improvement and manufacturing improvement that comes with deployment. So that's uh, that kind of thing is in there. And again, I'm I'm particularly excited about the transmission tax credit. We worked pretty hard to kind of get that uh, in there as well. What that is, is it's intended to apply just to the 
so-called regionally significant transmission, the ones, you know, connecting, you know, multiple states and regions, uh, high capacity delivery, long distance delivery, and, and not, you know, not to have taxpayers pay for what utilities uh, can kind of do on their own system already through the current regulatory process. So um, it doesn't solve the uh, challenges of, you know, who's supposed to pay for transmission, the so-called cost allocation challenge, but it it does make it 30% easier as a 30% investment tax credit. It takes a little bit of the bite out of those uh, those very difficult debates that will still have to take place in um, RTO proceedings and before FERC. Yeah. Well, um, you know, maybe uh, maybe parts of it uh, can be chopped up and moved in pieces the way uh, the president suggested in his uh, press conference yesterday. You know, I, I find it interesting uh, that this key administration initiative uh, intended to address uh, what is really a climate change emergency uh, uh, is being stymied by a senator who owns a coal brokerage company. And Arizona utilities have not been particularly eager to build renewables. Um, what factor is money in politics here? I mean, feel free to, uh, you know, duck and cover on this one. But what factor is money in politics here? You know, I'm gonna, yeah, I'm going to plead the fifth on that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, you know, I have been... I have been pleased that at least those offices will listen and sometimes they proactively consult with experts and I've been happy to, you know, offer some advice here and there or just analysis. Um, so, you know, there are plenty of other people will comment on what's motivating. I can't tell you what's motivating any given senator. I mean, I, you know, I, I will, you know, note that, um, you know, West Virginia was a, a Trump plus 30 state, right? I mean, um, you know, Trump over Biden. So, you know, here's a senator who's a Democrat, you know, who won when, uh, you know, Trump beat Biden. The same voters were, you know, by a fact, you know, 30 percent margin voting for Trump over Biden. So it's tough. It's a tough uh, electorate. Well, he's a, he's a Democrat now. We'll see if he's a Democrat after uh, after this election. Right. Um, so let's let's uh, let's talk about the uh, Department of Energy's uh, building a better grid initiative, which was announced the other day. Um, there's a sizable chunk of money involved, some twenty billion dollars in grants. Is, is that figure correct? Or um... yes, it depends on what you're counting. I tend to personally focus on what goes to large new lines. Um, and, uh, you know, that's probably in the, you know, five billion or, or less. Um, but there are some, uh, you know, there's some funding in there for resilience, which, you know, can be, you know, might be replacing uh, old lines with uh, more resilient lines, might be hardening, might be steel towers, you know, replacing or whatever, you know, different um, ways to bolster, bolster the system and protect against hurricanes, wildfires, et cetera. So that's that's in there. Too, and that's you know that's important for other reasons. What what part which which uh, part of DOE is overseeing this? The electricity. Um, uh, what? Well, it's a you know I think that's kind of evolving a little bit. The traditionally the Office of Electricity would do these things, and I think they are generally in the lead on it. Um, yeah, the White House and DOE have said off and on over the last year that they may or may not intend to create a so-called grid deployment authority. Uh, that term did not make it into legislation. Um, I'm not sure it means a great deal. I think 
the secretary can assign who she wants to, you know, administer different programs. So, um, you know, we might we might see a little bit of evolution there. I'm sure the Office of Electricity and the General Counsel's Office and the and the Loan Program Office will be involved as uh, as well because they intend to use some of their existing loan authority. So, I think we we talked a little bit about um, uh, the the transmission line siting authority. There's a, a a lot in the building building a better grid initiative about collaboration with states and tribal authorities and better coordination among federal agencies to help facilitate transmission line siting. Um, you know, so, uh, uh, so I guess you're saying it is now going to be different than, than what we had before because of what was in the uh, infrastructure bill. Um, the, uh, FERC's going to have some teeth and that might help in terms of the coordination that needs to occur. Yeah, I think that's right. And this, this building a better grid initiative, I think is the, uh, you know, kind of pulling together DOE's various existing and new authorities and, uh, financing tools, um, to try to drive the deployment of new transmission. So they, they sort of have a almost kind of awkward random set of tools. Um, you know, you open up their toolbox and it's like, well, who put this kind of hammer and that kind of wrench in there? But it is what it is. Congress said what they said. And now these are the tools and this is what's in the box. But I think Secretary Granholm is saying, all right, well, uh, for better or for worse, this is what's in our toolbox. Now I'm going to put some people you know, assign some people to go deploy transmission with this toolbox. And um, I thought it was a very thoughtful notice of intent in terms of like, um, you know, astute understanding of those tools and how they might be used and how they might be integrated together, as well as how DOE might be able to work with other agencies that might have their own tools and authorities like Department of Transportation uh, and FERC um, to, you know, sort of maximize the impact of these tools. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, well, let's talk about the ANOPER. Um, uh, you know, FERC is in the midst of uh, reconsidering its transmission policy. Um, I know uh, John Wellinghoff, who, who was on, on the podcast last year, expressed uh, a, a deep regret that in Order 1000, he kept the what's called ROFR, the right of first refusal, uh, in place. Um, and he wishes that they had done away with that in Order 1000. Um, it, 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 do you agree that that's an impediment, or uh, do you think we can work around it? Well, uh, so Order 1000 did a lot of good things. Um, I, I very much liked the planning and cost allocation aspects of that. And I think that's what FERC, you know, has done well and needs to do more of uh, now. Again, the, uh, the, the ROFR issue is, is really tough in terms of competitive transmission. Let, um, let's, let, let's tell the listeners what, what that means. What, what yeah, is the right okay. of first refusal? Yeah. So uh, first of all, the, the right of first refusal is a utility's uh, right to build an, an asset. So in this case, transmission. And um, uh, uh, what FERC did in Order 1000 was to say, well, regardless of what a state may say, um, we're not here at the federal level saying that any particular utility has a right of first refusal over anybody else to build whatever transmission is needed. So, 
if a regional planning process comes up with the need for a line from A to B, uh, there should be some process, probably a competitive process, to allow all any and all parties to bid on that. And that, of course, is you know philosophically uh, consistent with FERC's approach towards markets generally over the last say thirty years. Um, uh, and uh, what's happened since Order 1000 is, uh, number one, a bunch of states went back and said, I think it's almost 20 states now, went back and said, well, I don't care what those feds say, but in our state, this utility has this right of first refusal. So, you know, good luck to any third party trying to build transmission here, which effectively blocked, you know, those third party transmission companies in those areas. Uh, you know, there's still, um, you know, the question, uh, I think certain parties would like FERC to go and challenge those and preempt those state laws and say, no, there should be no right of first refusal done at the state level either. Um, thus far, that has not been done. Uh, so effectively, those state choices are, are in place. Um, but, uh, you know, I think uh, we've had mixed results overall with uh, competitive transmission. Um, and it's... Uh, so it's very much harder than generation competition, I think. Uh, generation is a much more structurally competitive sector of the industry. Transmission retains a lot of natural monopoly characteristics, all the things that you know normally lead an industry to be you know monopoly owned and you know uh, regulated by a public utility regulator. Um, which is not to say that you couldn't. Uh, make it work and some places have i think the texas puc uh had a good process with texas cres that worked i think in the uk they've been able to do some competitive bidding for transmission uh and certain regions of the u.s have too but we don't have any of this what we what we lack i think in the u.s is a sort of a some type you know benevolent authority that can make the choice between who should build what transmission, like FERC hasn't expressed interest in doing that itself. And to put that job on a voluntary association, like an RTO, when RTOs are voluntary, I think puts a lot of strain on that organization. And it, there's definitely a lot of cost involved in just running the process. There's a lot of um, you know difficulty and conflict of interest there. So it's it's been, I think, a uh, mixed uh, mixed bag. Uh, and, you know, if if what we need under the kind of climate imperative for a transmission to get built, um, you know, I'm I'm one of those who sort of says, well, I don't I don't care. I'm not going to fight a lot about who builds it as long as someone builds it and the costs are reasonable. And I think there are ways to get transmission built at reasonable cost, you know, and if some states want to do it one way and other states want to do it another way, I think that can be worked around. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, um, that's just one issue that's at play in the ANOPER. What, what else are they wrestling with? I think the big issue, in fact, this might be the biggest energy policy issue in the country, is that, uh, you know, I mean, if you, if you agree with people like me that a lot of transmission needs to move, and if you believe these studies like the Princeton and MIT studies and all of what NREL and energy systems integration have, have done over the years that we need to move a lot of power physically or of, across space, across states, then you really do need these large-scale lines to be built. And we don't really have a system that builds them. Order 1000 tried, but really didn't succeed. 
because uh, all it said was you, you have to like consider public policy um, and you have to you know coordinate with this and that entity. But those are kind of toothless um, pronouncements. So what we need now are um, requirements with teeth that say, you know, the planner, the, the you know, responsible transmission planning authority needs to plan and do it this certain way, uh, which includes a reasonable uh, forecast of the future generation mix. Um, recognizing that generation forecasts are just as hard as load forecasts, but it doesn't mean you don't do them. And they, they all do it on the load side. They make a forecast and, you know, they have models and they, you know, how much EV, you know, or how much, you know, LED penetration we're going to have. And that reduces the load or EV penetration that increases the load. Well, you got to make your best assessment of those things. Well, similarly on the generation side, we got to say, well, you know, turns out, Almost every utility in our footprint has a decarbonization goal by 2030 or 40. Uh, and yet, currently, that's not being accounted for at all in our transmission planning. So let's put that in. Don't just consider it, but FERC should say that must be put in and make your, you know, your best assessment of that future resource mix and plan for that future. So that's the fundamental requirement with teeth that I think FERC needs to um, put in there. And I'm, I'm pretty optimistic they will. There's some other details, but that's really the big one. Okay. <clears throat> um, any, any idea on um, when the ANOPER becomes a, a NOPER? Uh, yeah, the ball's in their court right now as we sit here in January, and I'm sure it's going to take at least a couple more months to put something together. Uh, I, I, th I think the commission is, you know, they've, they've received a lot of comments. I think those have been you know, partly, if not mostly processed. And I think the commissioners are now forming their views. Obviously they were joined by new commissioner, Willie Phillips, who's just getting up to speed on that as well as many other proceedings. So, um, you know, I don't think they would stick a fully formed noper on his desk you know in the first month uh being there but um no, you know i think uh, we're pretty close well it's a it's a lot to chew on so um I, yeah i we'll, we'll we'll uh we'll stay tuned uh it's going to be uh it's going to be an interesting uh interesting process and we'll see what they end up with um let, let's talk a little bit about retail versus wholesale um because We've got a bifurcated regulatory system in our country where uh, the retail market is regulated at the state level and the wholesale market is regulated uh, by FERC. Uh, that's in place all across the country except in Texas, um, which is an island unto itself. But, uh, you know, can we really focus on transformation of the wholesale markets without considering how integrated they are with the retail markets? Well, it sure is a challenge. This is a complex enough industry. If we didn't have this complete, you know, split where you got, you know, one person with the steering wheel and another person with the, you know, accelerator and brake and, you know, probably somebody else with, you know, pulling the bumper. So it's, it's, uh, you know, it is tough to make it work in a split jurisdictional system, but that is the system we have. Well, <clears throat> you uh, you addressed it in a study a couple of years ago uh, that uh, you did with Frank Lacey. It was called uh, uh, Who's the Buyer? 
and uh, you wrote it for the Wind Solar Alliance. And, um, you, you know, one, one of the things you say in there is, uh, uh, is how integral the retail market is in terms of resource adequacy and how they're really one hand is not knowing what the other hand is doing. Um, do you want to elaborate on that? Yeah, I think it's really important for the states that have retail access to um, look at the competitive retail suppliers as entities that should be uh, procuring not just short-term needs for the customers they serve, the retail customers, but but long-term needs as well. And you know, the, many of these competitive retail suppliers are very sophisticated. And they're fully capable, you know, they know that load operate, you know, is at certain times a day and they know that, you know, EVs are coming in and they know that wind and solar operate at different times and that storage can help fill some gaps, but, you know, other resources are needed as well. And I would really, I would love to, for, you know, those 14 or so states with retail competition to basically let, you know, really give those competitive retail suppliers that job of fully providing the the uh, energy services uh, for those um, uh, for the load that they uh, serve. I think what happens when you sort of take that off their plate, then we just end up giving more and more responsibilities to the regional transmission organization, the RTO or the ISO, when that's not really their capability. I mean, they're not supposed to be in the job of economic hedging on behalf of low they're not supposed to be in the job of long-term resource procurement but what ends up happening is they just keep sort of foisting this responsibility over to the rto and then they have to do everything through long-term capacity markets which are a really suboptimal approach so that's um that was one of the main themes of that. Now, to do that, I think states need to make sure that those competitive retail suppliers are up to the job to plan for their resource mix. You don't want them, you know, going belly up, declaring bankruptcy, and leaving a hundred thousand customers without a power supplier. Um, so that gets into the you know rules of you know who fills in if they go belly up. But you can prevent that bankruptcy by making sure those suppliers are adequately credit worthy, right? We do this in banking regulation all the time. You can, you know, and it's not hard to do. So the retail regulators should be, uh, you know, actually looking at those retail suppliers with some rules and standards about, you know, who's able to come into their state and provide that that service. And, you know, and if it ends up shrinking, you know, if we don't have 150 suppliers here in Maryland or you know, or in Pennsylvania or, you know, some other state, you know, so, so be it. As long as, you know, I'd rather have fewer suppliers that were really up to the job um, than, you know, uh, an unlimited number of suppliers that were just really just some guy out of his garage sending out marketing mailings. Yeah, that, that latter part is definitely a problem um, that the state should address. Um, one, one thing you said in the Who's the Buyer report, um, and this was uh, – a year before the the Texas weather-induced uh, grid failure. You said, emerging data from the generally well-functioning Texas market illustrate that flexible resources, including demand response, are being developed at a faster pace with retail competition. You know, and in the wake of last year's uh, uh, 
disaster. Uh, Well-functioning is not the modifier most folks are applying to the Texas market. Um, do you want to elaborate on that? Because, I, I mean, I think we were just talking about it a little bit, but, you know, we, we've got, in terms of a clean energy grid, things like uh, demand response, uh, home batteries, uh, home, home uh, generators, all of this, you know, rooftop solar, all of this is going to be an integral part of moving to a clean energy grid. So why, why is the Texas market superior to the other dozen or so states that have retail choice? Yeah, well, the Texas question is a tough one. Uh, and it's like anything associated with Texas has a black eye now. But I mean, you know, Texas still has a lot of good things, you know, uh, just because they had a blackout doesn't mean they don't have great chili recipes and baseball teams and football teams and any number of things. And, you know, their electricity market is still an excellent electricity market. It's just that they lost half of the gas system. It disappeared overnight. And that's unrelated to their electricity market design. So, um, you know, it's been kind of tough to watch the political process in Texas because they don't want to blame the gas industry for anything. But, um, you know, here we are right now, you know, I don't, by the time somebody listens to this, there could be more issues because, you know, it's getting cold there this week and the gas system still has, I mean, they, those wells can freeze off and, you know, there's a lot of problems upstream in the gas sector. It's a very weak gas sector there. It's not the electricity market problem. It's the gas sector more than anything. Yeah, I, I think the governor may come to, uh, hopefully he won't, but he may come to regret having said there won't be any problems this winter. Uh, we'll see. But um, you, you, you talked in that report, um, this uh, Who's the Buyer report, there was a uh, footnote that talked about a company called Gritty. And uh, you, you cited Gritty as an example of an electricity retailer in Texas that uh, advertised its lack of contracts and was pricing based solely on spot market prices. In other words, their whole business model was to just you know, charge a subscription fee and have folks uh, benefit by accessing the wholesale market price. Um, uh, and you said in that footnote, some customers may not have been aware about the risks of such an approach. Um, <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I don't uh, remember. Yeah, but that's, it was, that it was, was uh, 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 about a year ago uh, next month that Gritty put out a press release uh, telling its customers to drop them right away and find, find another yeah. find another supplier. Uh, and they're now bankrupt. Um, so, I, I mean, I think th that goes to what you were talking about in terms of, uh, you know, ha having the financial resources and the reliability question. And so, um, you know, that brings into uh, into play the the part of your report with Frank Lacey about long term contracts. And, right. Uh, want elaborate on that? And yeah, well, I, I think there absolutely is a public interest, as we saw in Texas, in making sure that customers, first of all, know what they're getting and are aware of the risks. Uh, and, you know, and second of all, you know, probably for most of them, all but the most sort of sophisticated buyers, uh, have some type of economic hedging, um, you know, done for them. And that economic hedging is basically through long-term contracting so that, you know, you're not riding on the 
hourly spot markets, which can, you know, blow up in your face. Um, but, you know, if you're 90% hedge, you have most of your power, you know, covered through long-term arrangements, then even if the spot markets blow up, you're, you're not that affected. And probably for most retail customers, at least residential customers, uh, the state commission will want to make sure that they're, they're, they're covered. Well, I mean, that, that's an important part of, of reliability in terms of hedging your risk. Uh, Gritty had no way to hedge their risk, and, and, and they were a victim, uh, a very prominent victim. We, we saw something similar to that, I think, in, in the California meltdown 20 years ago, where the state adopted a market structure that did not, effectively did not allow the utilities to hedge their risk. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. That's exactly that was like forced riding on the hourly spot market in California, which was a disaster, and people were not procuring power on a long term basis. And you know, these are on the supply side; they're like forty year assets, and um, you know, customers want to be you know hedged at least you know multi multiple years ahead of time. And we really need to make sure that the um, market structure is conducive to to long-term contracting. So I wanted to talk with you, Rob, about the role of natural gas in a transition to a clean economy. Um, in, in, in the first two episodes of this season, I, I talked with representatives of the merchant power sector, um, uh, Todd Snitchler with EPSA, the national organization, and uh, Dan Dolan with NEPCA, uh, the New England region. And... Um, um, and, and I bring this up because in last year's episode, we talked about this idea, which I first heard from you, was that if we've got enough transmission, if we harness all this wind in the plains states and all this offshore wind, and we've already got Texas pumping it out, we've already got SPP at 70%, you said, that's, at some point, that's incredible. Um, so if we have all that, we can there's going to be enough wind blowing somewhere to keep the bid, the, <clears throat> excuse me, to keep the grid stable at 60 Hertz. And, um, these, uh, uh Dan Dolan and Todd Snitchler were of the opinion that there'll always be a role for gas and, and that it'll be different. But, um, I wanted you to just lay out your thoughts for how it's somewhat of a controversial issue. What is the role of gas in the transition to a clean economy? Sure. I, well, I think we're going to be using a fair amount of natural gas for some time to come. Um, and in the long term, let's start with sort of the super long term, twenty pick your year, 2040, 2050, um, when, uh, you know, we really need to decarbonize. I think uh, I, I think if one were to do sort of what's the optimal decarbonization path for the for the country, I think you would get very quickly to, you know, over, over 50% renewables on the power system. Uh, and you'd simultaneously be expanding load by electrifying transportation and buildings. Um, and so that, you know, doubles, you know, the, the renewable uh, growth. So we're going to have massive renewable growth. Um, but, uh, there's a point where you kind of reach a kink in the cost curve where it gets very expensive to get to, you know, say to a hundred percent renewable energy, um, because then you really need like just, a, you know, a massive macro grid and you need to have every 
everything connected to everything. Um, so, you know, I think gas is one of those resources that can be there for the, you know, three day, five day, seven day periods when you might have lulls in, in renewable output. Um, and, you know, that can happen. I mean, you, all you need to do is, you know, look at the historical output, you know, by hour over the course of, you know, multiple years and you'll see, well, um, you know, there are times when you've got a few days when you need some resource there to cover it. So that's called, let's call that firm power. You need something there to be, to be firm. Gas is that resource now, um, you know, and nuclear that, uh, to the extent, you know, I don't expect new, much new nuclear at all. Um, but, you know, gas is largely filling that, that need now. And I think will in the future. So I view gas as sort of like the, the, uh, the gasoline powered minivan that sits in my driveway all the time. It sits there 29 days a, a month. And then every, you know, every once in a while I need to pull it out because we need a second car or the, the EV is, I don't know, um, you know, the kids got it or something, but you know, it's a backup. So I, I think, you know, you can call it capacity. I think the current capacity market designs are not perfect, but um, you know, it's essentially that idea that, you know, being being there and being available for the for the times when you don't have a lot of wind and solar. You know, and that's again, that's the long term future, which could well be gassed. You know, maybe we'll have a clean firm source. Um, people like Jesse Jenkins at Princeton use the term clean firm, and that's more in the realm of uh, R and D at this point. Um, but at this point, you know, the cleaner firm source is uh, is gas. So I expect it'll be there. For some time, and you know, and from here until 2040, you know, gas will still be there. I think, um, you know, providing energy when when needed. I think the capacity factor factors will gradually decline, so usage will gradually decline, but much of the capacity will stay there. And if, of course, if it's you know there and needed for reliability, then it's going to going to need to be compensated in some way. So whether that's a capacity market or some evolution of current capacity market constructs i think um uh you know i'm not sure i'm disagreeing necessarily with uh dan and todd on that so last year when we kicked off the podcast you made a comment that really caught my attention regarding the moper construct this minimum offer price rule uh which we have in many of the organized wholesale markets which among other things was intended to level the playing field between traditional merchant generators who are wholly dependent on the market price for a return on their investment and state subsidized resources, which have a state guarantee and are indifferent to the market price and whose participation in the markets served to blunt the returns that the merchant generators would otherwise receive. And you said last year, we could just do away with Moper and everything would be fine, even if some merchant players were forced out of business as a result. So I bounced that off of the merchant power sector representatives we talked to in the first two episodes of this year. Um, Dan Dolan at NEPCO was a little more sympathetic to your view, calling Moper a blunt instrument and expressing support for the stakeholder process in New England to define an alternative. And while Todd Snitchler at EPSA appeared more supportive of maintaining the MOPR, both seem to suggest that without MOPR or something like it, we run the risk of putting the grid system reliability at risk. Would you like to respond to that? Uh, sure. Uh, well, and I mean, I, I 
I, I work with uh, with them a lot, and I, I very much support having a strong independent power sector, which is kind of their mission in life. So um, uh, I don't want to make it look like we're uh, we're sort of fighting on many things, but yeah, on this issue, I think we 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 just disagree. Uh, I think if you ended Moper tomorrow. Um, reliability would not be harmed. Um, and I know they've claimed that and others have claimed that um, throughout this whole process. But I mean, the, the way it works is uh, uh, the, the, the market system in BJM, it's the reliability pricing model. It's the central auction for capacity. Uh, there's a physical requirement of the the quantity of capacity that the system needs they, they turn it into a demand curve um, so the system is going to get that much capacity it's just a question is that going to be is that some of that going to be from the new clean uh, resources that, that may have been supported by states or is it uh, most are all going to be the conventional resources and the, the the effect of these state supported resources is that you know that pie chart gets shaped differently and the state subsidized state supported resources get in there and provide a share. So it's just replacing one resource for another. It's not uh, any less quantity of capacity. It's not any less quantity of uh, reliable uh, resources. Mm -hmm. Okay. And um, in my discussion with EPSA, Todd Snitchler agreed with critics of state subsidies that it's unfair, say, for consumers in Ohio to pay for policy decisions by state officials in New Jersey, you know, to subsidize offshore wind. Um, what do you say to that? Well, that's not happening. That's, a, that's actually a great example. So let's say New Jersey has uh, a policy to support uh, offshore wind. Um, New Jersey ratepayers pay for that, right? That's what the renewable energy credits or however they implement the policy, um, New Jersey ratepayers pay for it. So the, the consumers in the state with the policy pay for the resource. Then, uh, yes, I know that uh, a lot of the existing incumbent generators are unhappy that uh, those resources can come in the market. They can lower energy prices. They can lower capacity prices. Um, but that's good for consumers. I mean, consumers in Ohio should be sending a thank you note to New Jersey policymakers. Consumers get a lower price. It's a benefit to them. So uh, it, that's like everybody recognizes that. And that's that's just the way it works. It's not the subsidy. You know, they don't sell the, send the bill for the wrecks over to Ohio. It's New Jersey ratepayers pay that. Now, the generators around the region, the incumbent generators, Yes, they can get less money. And look, I, I'm not, I mean, that's a sad thing, but that's not a subject of public policy. It's not, it doesn't make rates unjust and unreasonable if generators get less money. I, I, I think, uh, you know, the uh, generator community, you know, still sort of stands by this idea that investment risk is on the supplier, on the investor. Okay. Well, you know, many of these state subsidies are designed to support renewables and, um, but um, what about the policies we saw in Ohio and Illinois, which put consumers on the hook for hundreds of millions of dollars to prop up legacy coal and nuclear plants? Should the market be indifferent to those as well? 
Yeah, I certainly don't like some of those and uh, certainly don't like the process by which some of those decisions were made. Uh, there have been some nasty uh, activities in Ohio and, and some other states um, re uh, related to their, their uh, legislative process. Um, and, um, you know, carbon emitting or uh, other emitting plants that get state support that that is uh, you know I think it's a terrible state policy um, uh, on the nuclear plants you know if we're in a carbon uh, climate crisis and you got these nuclear plants that could last another 10 or however many more years um, uh, you know in many cases I'm not sure it's the cheapest the state really should be I think looking to see is that a low cost way to kind of meet carbon goals but in many cases it, it could be so I'm not I'm not as necessarily averse to, to uh, keeping nuclear plants online if the state decides that's how they want to uh, handle carbon policy it is their choice after all um, so uh, but you know in in neither case it's not really FERC's job I mean the Federal Power Act doesn't sort of give FERC the ability to undo these state policies. So, you know, I think we have to be internally consistent here and say, well, I mean, you know, the Federal Power Act provides this role for states to choose their resource mix. And um, FERC isn't, you know, going around the country and uh, changing that resource mix in the, the non-RTO areas or any more than it is in the RTO areas. So, you know, it's so that's it's really not FERC's job to uh, to interfere with. Okay. And um, both EPSA and NEPCA were very upfront about the need for an economy-wide price on carbon, whether a tax or a cap-and-trade construct. I'm fairly confident that you as an economist would agree that a carbon price of some sort would help grease the skids in a transition to a clean energy economy and clean energy grid. Um, uh, 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 I'm correct in that assumption. I, yeah, yeah you, you got me there. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, look, almost everybody I know says, says economy-wide carbon price is the efficient way to do it. And uh, in, my, in my case, that's that's pretty much how I got into this stuff in college with working with uh, environmental economists. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, do you favor one or the other, a carbon tax or cap and trade? Uh, not, not really. I, I, I think a tax probably is, uh, is clear uh, because for economy wide, there's all sorts of sectors where the determination of the, the credits and the trading wouldn't be as easy. I mean, you're, you know, gas stations and cars and lots of small things are not like big utilities trading socks permits, right? So I don't know, it feels a little bit more democratic. There's a lot of more opportunity potentially for uh, smaller entities to make decisions and make them more efficiently if the, you know, if their actions are reflected in the price. Uh, you know, that said, Brian, um, it is not going to happen, right? I mean, I think everybody also knows and should acknowledge that with this Congress, it's just not going to happen. Even with we got Democratic House, Senate, White House, ain't going to happen. So I think it's kind of an irrelevant point when you're talking about what should FERC do about state-supported resources, right? It's The states can do what they're going to do. And in fact, if we're going to get any climate progress, it's going to be through states. There isn't going to be a federal carbon price. Well, it's certainly going to be uh, part of the debate going forward as uh you know, if, if, if the Biden administration can carve this out and, and pursue it, you, you, we're, we're, we're seeing the arguments already from 
the pro fossil fuel side of things saying that, you know, we, it can't be done, you know, let's embrace gas. And uh, then to the other extreme, uh, you know, more towards the environmental movement side saying we, we've got to ban pipelines and we've got to uh, stop at which would be catastrophic economically. So, um, well, anyway, I'll get off my soapbox. So, there's one last thing I wanted to raise with you, and then I'll, I'll open it up to you for anything we didn't cover. But uh, <clears throat> it's been interesting to me over the years of this debate over whether or not competition in electricity has been effective, whether or not it's been more effective than continued monopoly regulation. And so... Um, you know, I, I, I think my, my view is that over the past 20 years, we've had a, a set of data that shows, that demonstrably shows that in the states that are in competitive markets, prices have gone down, while states that continue to be monopoly regulated, prices have generally, I should say, trended down and have trended up in, in the other bucket. And, and so uh, um, I, I'm just wondering if, if that sounds like a feasible assessment in, in, in your view. You've been around that long and have seen what's happened. And, and, then, um, and then to talk to you uh, about what I hear from other folks about the need for a counterfactual. So what do you think of that 20-year uh, trend analysis? Uh, is there anything to that? Yeah, no, I, I've seen that data too, and I draw the same conclusion that I think generation competition has been an unmitigated success you know i think it's it's uh really brought down the wholesale costs and those wholesale costs get filtered through into into retail uh rates in those in those regions um you know we get uh we get uh you know the data gets messy from you know different experiences and what caused uh you know different things um so you have to be careful about what which data to include, but um, I, I I almost just look at it um, structurally, like it's it's just obvious that if um, you know if there's a hundred plumbers who could serve your plumbing needs at your house, uh, you have two models: e either you, uh, you you know call around for bids each time you need something, or you know a plumber gets assigned to serve your house and you never get to choose an alternative plumber, it's just obvious that you're going to get a better deal under the former approach. And in generation, it's entirely conducive to that because the efficient scale of the enterprise is, um, you know, is very small relative to the size of a, a power system, you know, a hundred gigawatt power system can have, you know, projects that are, you know, 50 megawatts. I mean, it's just tiny compared to the overall size. Whereas, you know, you look at transmission and distribution, you know, there, there's a, you know, a very strong argument that at least, uh, you know, there are very strong scale economies, if not, you know, full natural monopoly still in those sectors. So um, I think generation is just so structurally conducive to competition that it's just, just obvious. Um, there and I mean I don't I don't think there's any basis for any new generation going into rate base anymore and there's a lot of states I guess probably a majority of the states that still do that. Well, I appreciate your emphasis on the fact that it is generation competition, the competition at the wholesale level that is driving the electricity price discipline we're seeing in the competitive states. 
I think in your Who's the Buyer study, you and Frank very succinctly identified the problems with retail competition in the states outside of Texas and showed how despite this, the savings at wholesale get passed through more quickly to the retail customers in those states. So back to assessing the benefits of market-based reforms we've seen in the electricity sector to date. Despite the clear data showing economic benefit, I hear some say that we need a counterfactual in order to assess whether or not competition has been good for the consumer. You know, so this would entail devising an economic model that tries to capture what rates would have been in the competitive states if they hadn't restructured, and then to somehow weigh that against what happened in the states that had maintained monopoly regulation. You know, I guess it seems like an interesting economic exercise, but is there a lot of value to that? I mean, I don't personally see the public policy need for that. I, I certainly wouldn't. I'd be interested if, um, you know, somebody could put together a study. I don't know what exactly they would look like, look at. Like, for example, you know, there are a lot of utilities around the country that are, you know, putting new gas plants into rate base, or certainly a lot of them want to. Um, you know, are consumers there paying more than consumers in um, competitive regions for the new gas plants? You know, let's do apples to apples across regions. That might be an interesting comparison or when plant in one versus the other. Um, you know, my, my guess is, I mean, I know there's fierce competition in these RFPs, the, you know, competitive RFPs for new power and fierce competition within the RTO uh, capacity and energy markets. And, um, you know, very often the, you know, the investors in the competitive regions, you know, they don't make their, their money back. I mean, they, they take private capital, it's at risk, they invest, they might, they might not get it. And um, that's just life in, in competition. And I think consumers strongly benefit from that. Well, I mean, it's just basic economic theory, right? That's being played out in the parts of the electricity market that have competition. Yes, I agree. Yeah. And playing around, and, and interestingly, I think playing out all over the world. I mean, you look at these tenders, these RFPs in Mexico, Australia, Brazil. I mean, generation competition is working all over the place. You know, whether or not they have an RTO or like spot markets even or retail competition, they don't necessarily need that. Just, just look at what they're doing in terms of procuring new generation. Uh, they're doing it through uh, RFPs and competitive bidding processes and getting extraordinarily low prices. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. All right. Well, Rob, I really appreciate this very much. Uh, I don't know if there's anything else you want to bring up for the good of the order. No, that's good. I look forward to listening to your other your other episodes. I've been a, been a listener on my when I go on my long runs, I put it on, and uh, it's been been good stuff. So appreciate being part of it. Wow, it's been great fun. Thanks. Talk to you soon.